That is our prayer, O God, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be exalted and blessed by us in our hearts and our voices and our thoughts and in our prayers in this day. We pray, Father, as well that the Spirit of God would have sway in this place, that you would illumine our minds to understand your word, and that you would inflame our hearts to respond to it in faith and obedience. And may the Spirit of God have his way with each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we find ourselves not exactly on the same page as one another emotionally. There is a, a church in the area that uses its church sign to display some catchy sayings that are designed to arrest one's attention while driving by and perhaps to get someone thinking about things. Now, it's not my style to use the church sign in that way, but they do to some significant degree and effect. And like everybody else, I read them when I drive by, as you do. And so far, none of the sayings have arrested my attention to such a degree as to cause an accident. But some of them are memorable, and one of them recently reminded me how, of how often human beings are, are not on the same page emotionally. It read, at birth, family laughed, I cried. At death, I laughed, family cried. How true. Same event, two opposite emotional responses. We are in the Gospel of John in the upper room discourse, and as Jesus teaches his inner circle of disciples, the 11 at this point, Judas Iscariot having left to betray him, it becomes clear that they are not on the same page emotionally. We read beginning in verse 5 of chapter 16, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus has told them that he's leaving them. And the natural human response to such leaving is like losing a beloved family member to death. They are grief-stricken. They are overcome with sorrow. But Jesus, throughout all this discourse, beginning all the way back in chapter 14, has told them some extraordinarily good news. He's told them that when he goes, he will send them an amazing gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ himself, coming to dwell in them, strengthening them, comforting them, motivating them, influencing them, teaching them, sanctifying them. He's giving them Jesus himself, not just to be around them or with them, but to live in them. That's astonishing, don't you think? 
It's amazing good news. So why are they so bummed? Why are they so sorrowful? Clearly, the disciples are not on the same page emotionally as Jesus. From time to time, we have to correct our own emotions to sort of bring them in line with the facts as God sees them. The psalmist does that from time to time. Uh, Psalm 42, verse 5, for instance. Uh, He speaks to himself, talks to his own soul, the psalmist does. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And then he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And then a little bit later in that psalm, in verse 11, and it's also stated exactly the same way in the next psalm as well, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And so it's time, dear friends, that we got on the same page emotionally with God. Now, to be sure, Jesus has told his disciples some hard things. Most recently, he has brought to their attention the inherent hatred of the world. Hatred toward the followers of Jesus and hatred toward Jesus himself. But very often, it is in the context of the most difficult occasions, the most challenging circumstances, that God delivers the best news and the choicest gifts. Think of it this way. What is worse than the most perfect being of all time tortured and murdered unjustly by wicked human beings? What is worse than that? What is better than the eternal redemption provided through the death of that very God-man, the eternally begotten Son of God. You see, the worst is the context for sometimes the best news. Jewelers place their diamonds against a backdrop of black velvet so that the beauty and radiance of its glory stand out. And Jesus, over and over again, shows us the best gifts against the backdrop of clouds of darkness. And so after speaking to them about the hatred of the world, he once again describes for them the gift of the Holy Spirit in a passage that is the most extensive description of the person and work of the Spirit in this portion of the Gospel of John. Picking up the text in verse 7 of chapter 16, we read, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged." I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, 
And therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. It is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. It is better for Jesus to have gone from them than if he had stayed. Why? Because he would send them the helper, the Holy Spirit, and as we saw last week, the transliteration of that Greek word into English is paraclete. The Greek word is parakletos. The root kletos means to call, para means beside. And so the paraclete is the one who is called along beside. And there are a couple of interesting observations to help us get started in unpacking this text. He has just finished describing, remember, the hatred of the world for Christ and for Christians. But the gift of the Holy Spirit has benefits both for Christians and for the world. Jesus has just exposed the world for what it is. It is the anti-God system of values and dispositions and behavior. And you might expect that Jesus would be ready to completely write off the world and cast the whole operation into the dustbin of history. But he doesn't do that. He sends the Holy Spirit with a clear advantage for believers but also with a ministry for the world. Let's look at it, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict who? The world. And he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, you might think, based upon what Jesus has just told the disciples about the world, that this means the, the Holy Spirit would come along with a great big cosmic, I told you so as he consigns the world to an eternity of destruction. But I don't think that's the case in this text. Because you see, God's ultimate plan is redemption. Redemption of the world. And Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ recognizing, guess what? Or excuse me, rec reconciling what? The world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, how is God doing that? Well, he's doing that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First of all, he convicts the world of sin. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The world is filled with sin. Sin comes in all shapes and sizes, all categories and kinds. There are bunches of lists of sins in the Scripture, in the New Testament. Let me read just one of them in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Things like these. In other words, you're allowed to multiply the list of sins, all of which deserve the judgment of God. And certainly every member of the human race needs to recognize whatever sins apply to him or her and be convicted of them and to repent of them. But even if a person repented of every known sin, taking from the Bible's lists of sins, 
that would not save anyone. There is one overarching sin of which the Spirit of God seeks to convict the world. One sin which is the key to the salvation of anyone and everyone. Jesus says concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The primordial sin is that the world will not believe in Jesus Christ, will not trust in the person and work of Christ, will not submit to Jesus. The world might be convinced of the dangers of idolatry. The world might be convinced of the difficulties of strife and of anger and certainly of drunkenness and might try to rectify itself in those areas. But the world can't stand the thought of submitting to Jesus Christ. The world is too sophisticated to believe in Jesus. The world is too refined to believe in Jesus. The world is too intellectually cultivated to believe in Jesus. The world is too proud to believe in Jesus. And without the Holy Spirit, the world would never, never turn to Jesus and be saved. The story of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 is a case in point. You remember the story how Paul and Silas were in prison, were praying and singing hymns, and an earthquake happened, and their chains fell off, and the prison doors were opened, and the jailer was about ready to kill himself when Paul and Silas stopped him and said uh, that all the prisoners were still there. And the jailer then said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. They didn't require the jailer to identify every last sin that he could name and repent of each one. No, just one. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that could only happen by the Holy Spirit. Remember the day of Pentecost. Peter uh, preaches this great sermon after the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the people which was the fulfillment of what Jesus promises right here in, in John chapter 16. And then we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, now when they heard this, they heard Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now, you know, the day before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit was given, Peter could have preached that very same sermon and nothing would have happened. Not a thing. But when the Holy Spirit was given, the people were pierced to the heart. What's that? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit of sin. And that's why 3,000 people from the world were saved because the Holy Spirit convicted them of sin and they believed in Jesus and were baptized. And then there's righteousness. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then in verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Everyone in the world knows that some people are more righteous than others, right? Everybody in the world knows people who are more righteous than they are, and they feel like they're more righteous than some other people. Even the world has a sense of right and wrong. Often the world's understanding of right and wrong is convoluted and confused. 
But the world continues to know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, even when they don't see those very things in themselves. But the world never knew true righteousness until Jesus showed up. And that every pretense of the worldly righteousness was then shown to be a pathetic attempt at virtue. And as Isaiah said, all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Peter, in counting the righteousness of Christ, cries out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The world's pretense at virtue dissolves in the presence of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God. But now Jesus is leaving. He says, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. How will the world then know true righteousness? How will the world know where to find the righteousness that it so desperately needs? Well, the world can find it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. The Holy Spirit will show what true righteousness is all about and how far short their best attempts at human righteousness fall. The Holy Spirit will also show where true righteousness can be found through faith in Jesus Christ alone so that believing in Jesus will be credited to them, as the Scripture says, as righteousness. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And then there is judgment. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You know, the world merrily coasts through life without any sense that there is an accounting, that God will hold anyone responsible for the world's rebellion, that God will judge the world's sin. The world is engaged in the grandest form of procrastination imaginable. It pretends that it can go along endlessly rejecting the reign and rule of Almighty God. But when Jesus goes to the cross and when he is raised from the dead, the ruler of this world is thereby judged. The ruler of this world is sentenced finally to the lake of fire. And that will be his final destiny. And he will take with him everyone who has cast his lot with the enemy of our souls instead of with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And who will convict the world that their time is short and that their leash is about to be yanked, that the judgment is real and inevitable? Who will do that? That if they do not cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ, they will join Satan in an eternity of destruction. Who will do that? It is the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of judgment. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence used. And he will convict the world when he comes concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, God has not written off the anti-God civilization with its rebellious values and dispositions and behavior. No, he has sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of the sin of not believing in Jesus, of the nature of true righteousness in Jesus and where to find it, and of the inevitable judgment of all those who reject Jesus. Why? Because God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that's the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. And by the way, 
The Holy Spirit does that convicting, does that convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment much better than we do. We Christians are poor substitutes for the Holy Spirit. We don't do a very good job of convicting the world of sin because we're sinners. We don't do a very good job of convicting the world of righteousness because we're not all that righteous. And we're no substitute for Jesus and his glorious righteousness. And we don't do a very good job of convicting the world of judgment because we deserve the same judgment. And apart from the grace of God, that's where we would end up. So if you have friends and acquaintances who are unbelievers who need to be convicted, pray first. Speak later. Because we cannot convict the world of anything. The Holy Spirit must do the convicting. Then there is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church. It is a remarkable gift, and Jesus may even have saved the best for last. Verse 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. First, he is the guide to the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. And by the way, it's the truth in the original language, not just truth in general, but to a distinct body of doctrinal truth. The truth about who God is, the truth about who Christ is, the truth about who we are as human beings, the truth about what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection, the truth about the salvation God has provided in Jesus Christ, the truth about how God in Christ has provided true righteousness for all of those who believe in him, the truth about how faith in the means by which we have true righteousness is applied to our accounts by faith in Jesus. The truth about how Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, enables us to grow in grace and holiness, how he sanctifies us. In other words, the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Those are what Jesus has in mind, not just by truth, but by the truth. And then he's the guide to the future, verse 13 again. But we, he, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, listen, and he will disclose to you what is to come. What will the future hold? Well, the spirit of God will show what will happen in the end. The Spirit of God will reveal the destiny of those who are unalterably opposed to God. The Spirit of God will describe the destiny of the enemy of our souls. The Spirit of God will encourage the church with the knowledge of the glories of eternity and in the presence of the Savior. The Spirit of God will describe the nature of the eternal state with all of its love and felicity and delight in the presence of the Holy One, the One who is Himself love. He'll guide us into what is to come, the future, and then he will guide us to Christ. Verse 14, he will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. That's what he said back in chapter 14 in verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit will recount the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to the church, to believers in Jesus. 
the Holy Spirit will remind us of all the teaching of Jesus, of all the things that Jesus taught in his upper room discourse, and also all of the things that Jesus taught to the crowds of people as he wandered throughout Judea and Galilee, even in Samaria. All of these things will be produced by the Holy Spirit for the church. The Holy Spirit will be a guide to the truth, a guide to the future, and a guide to Christ. But you know, the Holy Spirit has already done that. He's already done that. This promise has already been fulfilled. Well, how so? Well, everything that is promised in these verses is fulfilled in the New Testament. You have it in your hands, many of you, or you have it at home, or you have it on your phone. If you have the New Testament, you have the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in these verses. How so? Well, Jesus here prophesies that the work that we have in the New Testament is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 3, for, I, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, listen, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief by referring to this, when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made known to Paul and to all the apostles in general as well the mystery of the gospel, and that knowledge has been inscripturated. How's that for a new word for you? It has been placed in the Scriptures in the New Testament. Peter recognized that. He in one place recounted Paul's writings as Scripture, just as all the other parts of divine revelation. And so we have the promise of the Spirit as the guide to Christ. Well, the Gospels are the written record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we have Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit will be the guide to the truth, the body of doctrine, defining the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in the epistles of Paul and of John and of Peter. Their work ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit, and they are Scripture. And Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is our guide to our future, to what is to come. And that's described in the New Testament in Jesus' teaching about the future in passages like Matthew 24 and 25 and in epistles like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and, of course, in that uh, book at the uh, end of the Bible. What's that called? The book of Revelation. That's right. That's why we're studying it. That's why we are concluding its climax this evening. The Holy Spirit is the incredible gift to the church in more ways than we have time to recount this morning. But just know that the Bible that we have, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are the work of the Spirit of God. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of the promise that the Holy Spirit will be our guide to the truth, our guide to the future, and our guide to Jesus Christ. 
Do you all realize what a privilege this is to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do you? Verse 15 of our text, all things, listen to this, all things that the Father has are mine, Jesus says. Therefore I said that he, that is the Holy Spirit, takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The triune gift, the gift of the Trinity to the church, in which all that the Father has, he shares with the Son, and all that the Father has shared with the Son, the Holy Spirit takes, and he gives it. To whom? To some special group of super-Christians called saints? Is this some specialized category of clergy? No. He, the Holy Spirit, discloses all that the Father gives to the Son to the church, to you and to me, and to you and to me. He does it in the Scripture. He does it in the indwelling of Christ in us personally. He does it by living in us. What an incredible privilege. Yeah, there's a couple of amens there. Maybe you're just overwhelmed. Why are you so sorrowful? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance, and my God. What the psalmist could only dream about then, you now have. Heavenly Father, what glories you have shared with us. The person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the ministry of the Holy Spirit guiding us into truth, the scripture that you've given us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit giving us truth that we can live by and rely on. What an astonishing gift and what great privilege you have of taking the very soul of the triune God and disclosing it to us through Jesus by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.